0: Welcome to The Endgame, a podcast about the positive aspects of aging with grace, with joy, and with purpose. I'm your host, Don Auction. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get on with today's show. I'm pleased to have as my guest today, Dr. Dana Burr Bradley, the Dean of the Erickson School of Aging Studies at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Dr. Bradley has been a leader in the age-friendly cities movement, and her research interests have focused on issues of long-term care and the longevity economy, both in this country and internationally. Dr. Bradley, thank you for joining me today.
1: It's such a delight to be with you Don, um, always to talk about these, these issues which are really you know pressing as we think about our today and our future.
0: First of all, are there many schools of aging studies in this country?
1: So so the listeners, I did not pay Don to do this, but there are three schools of aging in the United States. You know, one in Florida, one in out west, and UMBC, right, the Erickson School of Aging Studies. Many of our colleagues across the country and the world think about issues related to aging um, and Gosh, what does aging mean, Don? I'm thinking, is it people who are, you know, somehow now old, getting older? Can we talk about that for a minute? Is it um, Sure.
0: Let's let's go to it.
1: Yeah, right. So so let's go to what does aging mean? So 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 listeners, I'm I'm looking at Don and I don't know how old he is. He's like my age, a little bit, maybe something like that, right? So we think about, you know, people who are aging are a lot of different chronological ages. They could be in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Heck, look, if you're not dead, you're aging, right? So that's what I tell people. And and there's so many um, of my colleagues in, in the three schools of aging in the U.S., internationally, of course, a number of, of, of uh, experts, and many, many other folks that think about how do we how do we think about the biology of aging? How do we think about the economy? Um, how families think about their family members who are growing older? And how we think about um, the social supports, the uh, whether it's uh, living in communities, uh, whether it's in long-term care, whether it's how we design the airport, right? So I just love being here in Baltimore, so close to BWI, with an airport that is just excited about thinking about how to be age-friendly and dementia-friendly.
0: That's great. What is it that the Erickson School is, is set out to do, or, or what, is, what is higher education's role in addressing these issues, do you think?
1: So what we do at UMBC is really uh, a wonderful example of providing... Connections for students of all ages um, that have thought about being in a community college environment, and maybe with an associate de- degree, or 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 you know being in that pathway to folks that come in um, for an undergraduate, a master's, and of course a doctoral degree in aging. Right, so UMBC is one of the original uh, programs in the country to have a doctoral program in gerontology. Right, so. So I don't wanna be flip and say something for everyone, but the Erickson School of Aging Studies has always focused on the business of aging. And oh, business, it sounds like a dirty word, right? But that could be your nonprofit, your your NGO, your government um, uh, supported services or for profit. And so much in the DMV that, you know, where we live here in Maryland, um, is related to the, the financial technology, the fintech um, side of what we do so much at UMBC is now um, recognized for their expertise in decision science, in information science, in data science. And we're so privileged to have a school that thinks a lot about providing and developing innovating services to support people as
0: they grow older um, across that spectrum. You mentioned business, um, and in the area of long-term care, there has been a lot of talk suggesting that baby boomers such as myself are not particularly drawn to the current models out there, such as uh, seniors-only retirement villages or even continuing care facilities. Has, has that attitude gotten back to industry leaders
1: you know, I certainly see that when I when I work with um, many of our donors and have um, they're at the cutting edge of thinking about what do consumers want, and one of the areas that is most intriguing to me personally is something we call the middle market, right? So, folks, I'm just going to go broadly with your listeners, people that look like you and me, right? And 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 uh, you know we we have maybe set aside some money for retirement. Maybe we have children who were, you know, now maybe out of the nest, maybe with grandkids or not, you know, with, with, on my end, I have grand grandparents. I've got, I've got dogs, right? But, um, <laughs> you know, that that we, we don't have, we have some money. You know, we've, we've thought about, we, we were we were lucky in the market. We were lucky with our jobs, but we don't have high income. High assets, and that's where a lot of the senior housing and supportive care market is really looking. That we call that middle market. Um, and I joke with my with my students who I train, whether they're doctoral students or the undergrads that I'm so privileged to work with here at UNBC. Um, and I, I talk about, for me, um, when we when we look at retirement communities. I'm the kind of person that when I come in my house, I do not wear shoes. I, I put my, my put my slippers on. Maybe that's because my husband spent years in Japan, but I would need a place to be supported that reflects my values, that reflects my personal preferences. Right? So, you know, I, I did, You know, Doctor B doesn't wear her, her shoes in the house, right? She likes her dogs running around her and she likes to see her chickens outside her house. For those of you listeners who know me, I live up in Granite and I've got chickens running around the house, not in the house, right outside the house. And I'm I'm very privileged to live in a, a very small house, but on a piece of land where we have, you know, foxes and deer and I can get in the office outside of Baltimore very quickly you know, if 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 I didn't live in this house, what would I? Where would I like to be, right? And what would I need to help me be the person I am, right? So when we talk about the business of aging at Erickson School, it's often about those concepts: how do we value that individual? Who is that person? What do they need? And it. That need system is very individualized, right? So again, the dean here doesn't want to wear her shoes in the house and likes her dogs to around and wants to see her the chickens outside or the birds, whatever you know, right? Be one with nature, and that is my version of growing older, but that might require assistance as I get older, right? So. That allows my students here at the Erickson School of Aging Studies to think about that individualized model and how do we how do we think about that business that would be behind that? And I don't say I want to say monetize. That's a it allows us to be creative and innovative. And the most important thing is it, it puts the person who is getting older at the center of the equation. The most important thing that we do here at UMBC is to put the person first. And I'm so excited about our new colleagues in our Global Aging Center, who are in um, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Zurich, and in Switzerland, um, in, uh, in India, in particular, uh, who are part of our collaborators, who are putting new ways they're challenging us as colleagues here at UNBC, to think about what does it mean to grow old and grow, grow old with those services that allow and support that person to grow old the way that they'd like to, right? And so what we've come to a conclusion is it's about the, again, person-centered. You've got to put the person who's aging at the center of that equation, that conversation it's not about what's best for them. It's what they say they want. And our colleagues in this international conversation have really been, and they've been pushing us at UNBC to talk about the rights of older persons as a center force, right? And, and so, you know, Don, you know, so many of us here in the U.S. are, are really, uh, uh, I want to say, grappling with, you know, really... And I know we're doing audio, but I'm using my hands to talk about that struggle to listen and think through what diversity, equity, inclusion means for our society, right? And, and what a great time we are here at UNBC to be doing that. And my colleagues internationally through the Global Aging Center have really been pushing us at UNBC to think about how we can be, again, centered on that older person and then think about the rights of older persons, which is a UN concept. And I'm very excited about that as we build that out through our programming and through our donors' work um, to bring in students of all ages
0: to UNBC. So some of the reading that I've been doing <clears throat> suggests that our emphasis or our policy up to this point has really emphasized keeping older people safe at the expense of their own individual uh, desires or needs or what have you—is this—is this sort of where that thinking is going? Is toward toward a different model?
1: Right. So you know what a great. So again, I'm. Um, I know with this audio, I'm using my hands. It's kind of like the yin and the yang, right? So there's this this great, truly a great debate about keeping people as they age um, safe, right? And you you reference that 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 so many family members and people in the um, supportive networks that we that work with in state and local governments are trained to ensure that someone is safe. And on the other side, so now I'm using my hands, I'm gonna click on the other hand, there's this great debate about people who are, are competent, legally competent, and this is a US uh, concept, not necessarily a construct internationally. But people who are adults can make bad decisions, right? So, so I uh, right and, and and Don's you know he's not in head, right? So this is so I'm using my hands now like this tension, right? People can make decisions that look like they're bad, but they but they're adults, right? And they can make decisions that we think are are less um, supportive as they grow older. And a great example would be with. Are family members who love their possessions and they've kept them generations to generations and their house is full of, of, and I think about my colleague, um, Dave Eckert, who talked about this in one of his books. And this is not a a psychological uh, diagnosis, but what do possessions mean to people? And so you have a, a younger family member comes in and the house seems full of stuff. It's all stuff. You can barely move, right? It's stuff, right? And so Don's laughing with me about this.
0: And I, I had uh, an aunt who actually had so much stuff that she bought a second residence and filled that one with stuff right? also.
1: And, and so, again, I'm, I'm just, you know, given this broad, you know, uh, um, example and so at what point does this stuff become a public health hazard, right? And so Don and I are not qualified to make that definition, diagnosis. Like that's not what we do. Uh, there are people who can, who, can, who can spend time with that older person and make that, that, that definition and diagnosis. But for family members, it can look like it's just like, oh my God, it's all this stuff. What do we do with it? And, and yet that older person, is not, you know, it, that is their right to do what they want to do with their stuff, even though for people on the outside, perhaps younger family members or someone, uh, you know, a, a neighbor coming in. Um, and that, again, I want to be very careful because there is a, a, a point where um, there are um, psychological uh, diagnoses when someone has lots and lots and lots of stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. i not, but it can look like, oh my gosh, you no know, boxes of family papers. What do we do with that? And and that is um, that's that one of the yings and yangs, right? And so um, the Erickson School of Aging Studies does not train people to make diagnoses. We do not have a, a clinical uh, part of what we do. We do offer a, a graduate certificate in the management of dementia services, the only one in the country. And thanks, Don, for asking about that. But but that's about how we design programs and services to support people who have a diagnosis of dementia. I think the bigger question here is how how do we in Maryland, in particular, and you you know um, what we do at the Erickson School of Aging Studies to train and support. And identifying this the the um, our students who are actively supporting people of all generations, and and you know one of the things I'm really excited about is our, our current um, it's a research study that came out of a student who was coming back to UMBC two years ago uh, to finish his 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 program, and he he almost didn't finish because he took time away to care for his mother who was on dialysis. He's older, and, and she was yeah, she was obviously older, right? And so Dimitri, I'm not gonna use his last name, gave us this great idea to look at and ask how many of our UMBC students were actually caregivers for non-childcare, right? So caregivers for, Don, for you and I, Plus, plus, right, and and this is a very novel question. So, lots of what we do in my on my faculty and in other researchers talks about um, the 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 kind of what it looks like if you're a caregiver for someone who's older. You know, what's that? What does that look like, right? But no one's asked if you're a college student, what does that look like? And this all came about because we had a, an undergraduate who kind of said, I'm back, I wasn't back because I was doing this caregiving. And now I'm like, I'm here. I wanna know like, how does, how does UMBC help me? And so we've done a pilot study um, this fall and we, we surveyed all undergraduate and graduate students at UMBC. And then our partner at Coppin State University, which is an HBCU. And so I'm really excited, hope you'll ask me back. Um, in a couple of months, and I can tell you about the study. Just tip of the iceberg: these students who were they are um, not struggling academically; they've made it work post COVID, but they were um, they've been just so forthrightful in their conversations, follow up interviews about they didn't even know that this was a thing, like like they're doing their thing with their family, and they never thought to ask a faculty member for just just a, a you know a piece of time to get their assignment in because they spent, you know, three days in the ER, then the hospital with their grandparent. But they never thought to ask. And you know, Don, at UNBC, our faculty would go there with them on the mile to make sure they were a success. But our students didn't even think to ask. And I'm just I'm very excited about yeah, really, really interesting. And not saying that the faculty should do anything differently, but I think, you know, UNBC is an age-friendly university along with a number of others in the U.S. at the University of Dublin in Ireland. And this may be like the tip of the iceberg, just that we recognize our students have different roles. And um, I'm so privileged on behalf of the Erickson School to to think about this. This was always been on my mind, but to be in a place where UNBC could could be a, a pilot uh, university thinking about how we support our students as caregivers in the longevity economy.
0: Let me ask you about another problem that is current uh, and that gets a lot of media attention, and that's the shortage of workers for the facilities that care for older adults. Is there something direct that the Erickson School is doing to ease that shortage?
1: So ease that shortage, right? So we could look at the demographics, we can look at the numbers, and there will never be enough caregivers. We know in the next 15 years, the with the growth in older persons who have um, short-term and long-term disabilities in the state of Maryland, we will need to have... It, let me just go with the DMV, right? Not even the state of Maryland. The exponential increase in care workers is not supportable, right? right. And, and so many of them are, um, they're not low skilled, but they're not our highest paid hourly workers. And so I applaud my, 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 um, like my colleagues in the trade associations that really work with senior housing and care long-term supportive services companies to think about how we do the financial model to support people in this in, in this work. And so the again to your point about what is the Erickson School of Aging Studies doing about this, we spend a lot of time with our colleagues in all the um, companies that employ folks, whether they're in senior housing and care, whether they're in assisted day, in in um, working in, in jobs in the communities, to think about training and also career ladders, right? So it's one thing to say you do this job right now, right? So now I'm using my hands, going like right now. But there is, it's important to look at all our folks that are doing this very important work and ask where will they be in two or three years, right? So again, working with the companies who are our major employers in the area and ask about how can we support this skill set. If it's not at UMBC, it could be in our partners and community colleges. It often is in um, uh, supportive uh, training in the tr- our professional associations that we work with all the time, whether it's HFAM, um, leading age, I and mean, I could go on and you know, talk about that. Um, but I, when we approach it as it's an hourly job, it's only for the moment, that does not help our older persons in the community. And it does not support our communities that are, um, are providing this care, right? So it's not about the money. I mean, it's always about the money, right? But it's really about thinking about that, that how do we grow people in this profession? And so what we do specifically at the Erickson School of Aging Studies is to, in our all our, our programs, is to talk about if you were managing, if you're a leader in a, in a service, in a, a company that's employing people that are frontline direct service workers, how can you do that better? What do they need? How can you do it better? And how can you plan for the future?
0: Good questions. Great questions.
1: Hmm. Oh, it's not what, it's not only what keeps me up at night, it's what gets me going in the morning.
0: Are there other kinds of research projects that your faculty are uh, working on that are interesting or could have benefits for older adults?
1: So I, I, when I think about the broader UMBC goal here, you know, so much of our faculty, so many of them are engaged in the community, whether it's in central Baltimore, in Northwest Baltimore, um, or internationally, right? And um, we're particularly involved in projects involving um, our technology in ways that enhances social connectivity, decreases social isolation, and enhances um, public health. And I'm so excited about our faculty across the colleges that work with the Erickson School of Aging Studies Mm -hmm. who are um, uh, really at the forefront of that technology innovation. And um, I'm really excited about, we've got four new graduate students working with us now in translating what we do in computer science to operationalize that for, um, for applications to enhance social connectivity. And um, it's it's such a joy to see our students of all ages, but particularly our you know our, our masters and our young doctoral students know that they have the technology available to provide a, a platform, an opportunity um, for for people of all ages, particularly for older adults, to engage in ways that are very important for them, and and then. It's really important to get those venture caps, venture capitalists to, you know, whether it's again through NIH, NSF, and then those venture cap people to invest in these, these programs. So it's, it's a wonderful
0: time to be in this area. I'm so blessed. Dr. Bradley, thank you so much for sharing these thoughts with us today. A lot of interesting things going on for sure. And, uh, a pleasure to hear about them.
1: It's such a pleasure. Thank you, Don, for your time. And um, let, I hope, I'll look forward to uh, touching base um, in the couple in the coming months.
0: All right. And uh, to learn more about the Erickson School, you can check their website, which is erickson.umbc.edu. Thank you again. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our free weekly newsletter, The Endgame, at theendgame.substack.com. I'm Don Auction wishing you all the best in aging with grace, with joy, and with purpose. I hope you'll join us for future programs here at The Endgame.